Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. They rose up out of Dayton, Ohio during the late 1800s. Wilbur and Orville Wright, two brilliant minds under one roof, joined by one incredibly simple goal, but one with an incredibly complicated set of instructions. They wanted to give mankind the power to fly. It was nothing short of an attempt to achieve what every human had dreamed of for millennia, but what most assumed would never be possible. Others had certainly tried and failed, but maybe it took this mechanically inclined pair with their combination of brilliant ingenuity and unshakable small town humility to finally break the code of human flight. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to another episode of Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives and big events, and theirs may be one of the biggest contributions to progress in the history of the world. Today, we're discussing the Wright brothers. Wilbur, the older of the two, was born in 1867. Orville was born four years later. The brothers, who were so much alike in some ways they could have been twin engines on the same flying machine, both had steely gray eyes and nearly indistinguishable voices. Both loved music and both savored hard work. They were incredibly demanding of their own skills, and both loved nothing more than to spend hours upon hours standing at their shared workbench, tackling any of a number of self-imposed mechanical problems. But they weren't carbon copies. Wilbur was a tall, silent, thoughtful man. Orville was shorter, stockier, moodier, the shy one but not afraid to dress in the fancy clothes of the day. Wilbur had an incredible steel trap of a memory. Orville was more forgetful by comparison, slower paced, gentler, and socially withdrawn, while Wilbur, even when not saying much, was more naturally charismatic. Wilbur's ease with public speaking seemed to have the power to draw people to him, sometimes leaving Orville to stand to the side just as another spectator. But together, they were like a single person, like one mind working. They sometimes disagreed, even to the point of angry shouting matches from their workbench, but it was more like a war waged inside the same brain. They each had powers of persuasion and logic, to the degree that sometimes they'd both end up flipping their opinion. But if anything could be said of them, even in the midst of these loud disagreements, they were both always pointed in the same ultimate direction. When they set their mind to something, they were dogged in their tenacity and refused to let it go until the project was done. 
Their father, Milton, was an itinerant preacher in a denomination called the Church of the United Brethren in Christ, a sect that stressed firm convictions on the abolition of slavery and the progressive rights of women. Milton, often referred to as the bishop, was a generous man, one of rectitude and purpose, traits he got from his own frontiersman father and which were passed straight on to Wilbur and Orville. The bishop was an opinionated man, not afraid to stand up for what he believed, yet a liberal enough father to allow his children to expand their minds with books during what can best be described as perpetual independent study. Ah, homeschooling, 1800s style. Their mother was a loving, intelligent woman named Susan, who sadly died of tuberculosis in 1889 when the two were still young men. She was convinced they'd make something of their constant tinkering someday and was fond of storing their ad hoc mechanical creations along the shelves of their home. Milton's dedication to his church service kept the family moving in the early years, traveling around the Midwest as the need for his planning and attending conferences continued. But you have to wonder, in the midst of all this moving around, where the whole airplane thing came from. Well, Wilbur and Orville told the story themselves of how they first became fascinated by the idea of flight. When they were boys, the bishop sometimes returned from his itinerant travels with a gift in hand. Once, when the boys were 10 and 6, he came into the house and tossed some hidden object into the air. To the boys' amazement, the object didn't fall back to the ground, but hovered across the room. Soon it hit the ceiling until it finally fluttered to the floor. It was a little toy known as, of all things, a helicopter, but which they called a bat. It had a light frame of cork and bamboo covered with paper, which formed two screws driven in opposite directions by a simple system of rubber bands. They were instantly fascinated by it, but in the hands of small kids, it didn't stand a chance. Especially two boys with their preternatural sense of curiosity. They basically studied it till it broke. Not to worry, though. The ingenuity gene kicked in early with these two, and they began building more helicopters for themselves. Of course, bigger is always better, right? So everyone they made was bigger than the last. But any physicist will tell you what the boys had to discover for themselves. The bigger the object, the more power you'll need to make it fly. Well, when they discovered that just doubling the size of the helicopter required eight times the power, they gave up and went back to their beloved kites. I guess flight would have to wait. Seems like most stories of great people have some turning point, some singular moment that if it didn't happen, they might not have ended up on their track toward greatness. One of those moments for the Wrights happened fairly early, 1884, when the boys were still in school. By then, they'd settled back in Dayton for good. It was Wilbur, Orville, Mom and Dad, and the youngest Wright, Catherine, who was born three years after Orville. Wilbur was 17 and already quite the young scholar, extremely good at every subject, and already declaring his intentions to go to Yale. But then the unexpected happened. He was playing ice hockey with some friends when he was struck deliberately in the face with a hockey stick. He lost most of his upper front teeth. He was fitted with false teeth, but that was only a cosmetic fix. The excruciating pain in his jaw and face could only be cured by time. The boy who did it was younger than Wilbur, but much larger, and was known as the school bully. His name was Oliver Huff, a boy who infamously grew up to become a serial killer with over a dozen murders to his name, including members of his own family. 
For Wilbur, the attack and the pain it caused led to a great deal of anxiety, a lingering digestive issue, and the end of any talk of going to Yale. He fell into a long and dark depression. Where he once talked only of himself and his plans for further education, he now turned his attention to his ailing mother, who by then was entering the final stages of tuberculosis. When he wasn't at his mother's side, though, he continued to teach himself by eating up every book in his father's well-stocked library. He became a reclusive young man whose powers of focus would grow formidable with time. That focus, combined with his insatiable curiosity and the willing company of his younger brother, Orville, was the key driving force of all of the Wright's future endeavors. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. The most important of the Wright brothers' early endeavors was, at the age of 21 and 25, when they opened their own bicycle repair and sales shop in 1892. They called it the Wright Cycle Exchange. They'd already dipped their toe in the cycle business while also running a printing press and newspaper when Orville was still high school-aged. But by now it was growing into a real obsession. By their late 20s, they'd graduated from merely repairing and selling bikes to actually building their own bike models from the ground up. Thus, it was that their bicycle shop became a sort of ground zero for experiments in motion and balance. These days, the guys would have their own Silicon Valley startup. (laughs) Probably. They were definitely entrepreneurial. The spirit of young America at its best. And that spirit lined up perfectly with the times they were living in. During the mid-1890s, when the Wright brothers were building and selling their own bicycles, there was a great deal of activity in the world of aeronautics, that is, the science of flight. The two never lost their fascination with that crazy little helicopter and continued to read and study all the literature generated from the tests of scientists and mathematicians around the world. While there was a real sense that a breakthrough was in the air, so to speak, there was also a growing frustration in the aeronautics community over the ongoing lack of success. Among the stories of failure was that of the French inventor Clement Adair, whose attempts to get his steam-powered bat-winged contraption off the ground were the stuff of bad silent film comedy. (laughs) I think I've seen that clip. It's like outtakes from that Shark Tank show where absolutely nothing goes right. To his credit, his machine did get off the ground, but only by inches, and his inability to maintain anything like control led to a crash every time. Then there was Hiram Maxim, who's more famous for inventing the machine gun. He invested a small fortune in building a huge, 100-foot wingspan, multi-winged machine, also powered by steam engines. But Maxim didn't seem to have the stomach for the long haul. His aircraft was powered up, went a couple hundred feet, then crashed and burned. He immediately lost interest in flying and moved on to the next thing. And there were many others who came and went, but not so the Wright boys. A sort of fire was lit under them after they read news of the 1896 death of one of their flying inspirations, a German by the name of Otto Lilienthal, who died of injuries sustained in a glider crash. The brothers gave voice to their respect for him in their own writings later. Quote, In the field of aviation, there were two schools. The first, represented by such men as Sir Hiram Maxim, gave chief attention to power flight. The second, represented by Otto Lilienthal and others, to soaring flight. Our sympathies were with the latter school. 
partly from impatience at the wasteful extravagance of mounting delicate and costly machinery on wings which no one knew how to manage, and partly, no doubt, from the extraordinary charm and enthusiasm with which the apostles of soaring flight set forth the beauties of sailing through the air on fixed wings, deriving the motive power from the wind itself. With a newfound zest for learning everything about flight, they devoured all of the literature they could get their hands on. These readings gave them a thorough understanding of the nature of the problems inherent in flying, and a feel for all the ways it can go terribly wrong. To quote Wilbur, All of the great missionaries of the flying cause infected us with unquenchable enthusiasm, and transformed idle curiosity into the active zeal of workers. The boys had clearly approached a point of no return with their obsession with flight. Exhibit A was the fact that they turned the upstairs of their humble bicycle repair shop into a busy two-man aeronautics laboratory. Exhibit B, they began to funnel every last cent from their bicycle sales into funding all of their research and experimentation in flight. Over time, they came to many conclusions merely by reading, thinking, and debating aloud. For instance, many scientists at the time had thought the best way to stabilize a glider was by the operator on board shifting his body weight. But the Wrights thought that there would be too much random wind coming at the operator from too many directions to always shift quickly enough. They felt confident that the better way was to give the operator the ability to alter the tilt of the wings. They went so far as to create their own glider, at this point simply to have a physical object to refer to. This definitely counts as Exhibit C. Their deep daily interest had turned into full-bore obsession. On their machine, they attached a cord to each end of both wings, allowing the operator to turn the craft in midair. Also, they applied the theories of 18th century British engineer George Cayley, creating their wings with a slight asymmetry, what folks in aeronautics call camber. This means that the front edge of the wing, the edge that pushes into the wind, has a curved bulge that then tapers toward the back edge. Cayley said that this shape would diminish the air turbulence that's created on the top surface of a completely flat wing. But by 1900, the brothers had to admit this was all just theoretical. They knew they couldn't just sit on theories anymore. They had to start testing them. But if they were going to do any actual flying, they also knew they'd need a windier location than Dayton. As matter-of-factly, as if you are writing a note to self, Wilbur sent a letter to the U.S. Weather Bureau asking where a good location might be to fly their glider, and they suggested the Outer Banks of North Carolina. So again, on their own dime, they set up shop on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, their homemade glider in tow. There they spent a good deal of their time simply standing on the beach watching birds fly. The locals must have thought they were nuts. They were there, in the suits they wore every day, no matter what, staring up intently at birds flying overhead. What they were looking for were the birds that could stay aloft without flapping their wings. After some intense but very weird study, the men could imitate with their arms almost every movement of a bird's wing. With the wind finally on their side, the brothers attempted many unmanned tests of their glider, followed by several manned test flights several miles down the beach at Kill Devil Hills. Unfortunately, despite the clever rail system they devised to help launch the craft, the glider never generated much lift, so they didn't have any truly successful tests. It was back to the drawing board for the undaunted duo. Indeed, they built another glider with an increased wingspan, but the alterations only increased lift by small fractions. 
All of this so-called failure was certainly not for lack of trying. It was 1901, almost two years had now been devoted to the pursuit, and when they looked deep into the data to figure out where the problem was, it was one of those forehead-slapping moments. We've all had plenty of those. Mm -hmm. Well, theirs happened back at the bicycle shop turned laboratory, where they built a six-foot wooden wind tunnel. These guys were unstoppable. That's an understatement. The wind tunnel was open on one end with a gasoline-powered fan on the other. They'd hang pieces of repurposed hacksaw blades, which were hammered into a multitude of possible wing shapes. Some flat, some convex or concave, some square or oblong. And hang them inside with wire from bicycle spokes. With the fan blowing, they'd meticulously log the behavior of each shape against the oncoming wind. They spent two months collecting data, all while still building and selling bicycles to keep the money rolling in for their experiments. No one before them had dedicated so much time to trying to nail down the minute specifics of the wind's effects on airborne materials. It was a testament to their dogged determination that not only had they created the most thorough collection of wing data to date, but they also successfully proved wrong some of the numbers that had been used by scientists for nearly 150 years. That would be the forehead-slapping moment, I presume? Yes. The so-called Smeaton coefficient, named for British physicist and civil engineer John Smeaton in 1759, had been used by men like their hero Lilienthal to make the wings for their gliders. Smeaton's number, 0.005, was used to calculate lift and drag against the behavior of the wind. But the Wrights found that the more correct number was 0.0033. Such a small difference. And yet, that small difference was enough to help the brothers go from gliders that wouldn't fly to gliders that would. Back to Kitty Hawk they went with their latest and greatest model. But they didn't just have new longer and thinner wings to show off. Their new toy also had adjustable rudders in the back and a movable stabilizer in the front. And it worked. It's hard to convey with words alone, but this was an incredible leap forward. For the first time in history, a person could not only fly, but fly in a machine that could be manipulated in all three dimensions. Not just straightforward with the occasional turn, but up and down at will. And mostly with the simple coordinated movement of the operator's hands and feet. It was the kind of success that made heroes of small town men. It was 1902, and the Wright brothers now possessed the most sophisticated flying machine the world had ever known. And with it, they of course owned every possible gliding record. There wasn't much left to prove, except for one thing. For their craft to be fully accepted as a true breakthrough in technology, they would have to add propulsion to the mix. Mm, A hero's work is never done. They had to make a plane with an engine. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to historical figures. It was 1903, and the Wright brothers were in their early 30s when they constructed their first powered plane from parts they made themselves. Spruce framing, two wooden propellers, muslin-covered wings, and of course, the newest accessory, a custom-built four-cylinder gasoline engine. Well, say goodbye to clean and quiet coasting along cushions of air. Say hello to loud and sputtering engine grit and grease. The future was calling. 
they were back at Kitty Hawk once more. They made four flights on that remarkable day of December 17, 1903. The first test was flown by Orville for a scant 12 seconds and just over 120 feet. Well, nothing to write home about, but enough to encourage further tests. To quote Wilbur, it was a flight very modest compared with that of birds, but it was, nevertheless, the first in the history of the world in which a machine carrying a man had raised itself by its own power into the air in free flight, had sailed forward on a level course without reduction of speed, and had finally landed without being wrecked. The second flight that day was by Wilbur, who went 175 feet. Then the third flight by Orville went about 200 feet. The fourth flight, at last, was the charm. Wilbur was at the controls, and he caught just the right gust of wind, flying for an amazing 59 seconds and a total of 852 feet. The landings for each ended with a wing tip touching a bit of ground, so there was some substantial damage. And they took it back to the hangar, where they set about fixing it, when a huge gust of wind pulled the machine up into the air. Some men, including a Mr. Daniels, attempted to rescue the plane from the wind. Quoting Orville, Mr. Daniels, a giant in stature and strength, was lifted off of his feet and falling inside between the surfaces was shaken about like a rattle in a box as the machine rolled over and over. He finally fell out upon the sand with nothing worse than painful bruises, but the damage to the machine caused a discontinuance of experiments. But no wind-induced damage could wreck their spirits. The day had been a huge success, one that was worth writing home about. The brothers immediately sent a telegram from Kitty Hawk back to their father in Dayton that very day. And father was proud, too. He sent the telegram to the Dayton Journal, but the news was overshadowed by reports of a Zeppelin that had flown for 60 miles. It's hard to imagine, but their incredible news failed to bat an eye. Over the next month, a few other papers picked up the story, but they were by then filled with all kinds of misinformation. A report in the New York Herald said the flight had been for three miles and that a fan or propeller beneath the machine had helped it stay aloft. Hmm, exaggerations, to say the least. And this is how one of the major moments in human history almost got lost in the shuffle. By this point, the brothers had conquered the biggest issues and now knew they wouldn't necessarily need the strong winds, soft sands, and high hills of Kitty Hawk to do further testing. So that same year, they wrapped up operations there and moved back to Dayton, where they rented a large field called Huffman Prairie, eight miles from their home. The man who owned the land, Torrance Huffman, said they could use the land rent-free as long as they didn't bother the cows. Now, the field wasn't some secluded area used in hopes of keeping the mysteries of flight secret. In fact, there was a trolley depot directly adjacent to the land and thoroughfares just to the west and south. It wasn't the most ideal spot, with some tall trees, power lines, and fences, but it was convenient to home, so it was good enough for them. There, on the newly acquired land, they built a small hangar to house the plane, essentially inventing the world's first airport. Working now in the late spring and summer of 1904, the air was less buoyant, so they needed more power to get the plane off the ground. They used the same rail system as at Kitty Hawk, but needed something sturdier to help launch the plane off the ground, so they devised a tall tower from which a heavy weight could be raised and lowered. 
As the weight lowered, it engaged a system of pulleys that were attached to the front of the plane. The plane was then pulled down the rails at a much greater velocity than simply sliding down the rails, as had been the system at Kitty Hawk. On May 26, 1904, with Orville lying prone at the controls, they made their first successful powered flight, if only modestly. It was a short and bumpy flight in a single direction and ended by a resounding thud into the ground. By September, the boys were launching into the air again, ultimately doing 105 attempts and traveling in single flights as long as five miles. But on the momentous day of September 20th, 1904, they were able, for the first time, to fly out to a point and then return to the same spot. The men wrote of it later, barely able to convey what must have been a truly surreal, terrifying, and deeply satisfying moment. To quote Wilbur, Before reaching the end of the track, the operator moves the front rudder and the machine lifts from the rail like a kite supported by the pressure of the air underneath it. The ground under you is at first a perfect blur, but as you rise, the objects become clearer. At a height of 100 feet, you feel hardly any motion at all, except for the wind, which strikes your face. The operator moves a lever, the right wing rises, and the machine swings about to the left. You make a very short turn, and you find yourself facing toward the point from which you started. The objects on the ground now seem to be moving at much higher speed, though you perceive no change in the pressure of the wind on your face. You know then that you are traveling with the wind. This and other successful tests must have been among the most exhilarating new experiences by a human in all of history. By 1905, they were able to keep the plane going in the air for half an hour, going a distance of 24.2 miles in 39 minutes and 23.8 seconds. They did straight lines, circles, figure eights, and all punctuated with a perfect damage-free landing. You have to wonder, in the grand scheme of history, if the lackluster dent they made in the 1903 news cycle, just a year before, wasn't perhaps a boon for their creativity. Working in something like isolation there in Dayton, with no press bothering them, the guys were able to perfect their invention alone and without interference from anyone. But now, with an A-plus test of a motor-powered plane, they knew they had something, and they weren't alone in their enthusiasm. There was a man named Amos Root, who lived near Cleveland, some 200 miles away. He was an old man who'd made his fortune in beekeeping, believe it or not, and was free to pursue his fascination with all things newfangled and mechanical. He began a correspondence with the Wrights soon after word spread of their experiments the previous year. If he could just see what they were working on, he pleaded, he'd be forever grateful. But the boys held off, told him to wait till they had things just right. Long story short, Amos Root was there on September 20th when Orville negotiated the world's first complete circle with a heavier-than-air machine. He wrote about it in a trade journal with the breathless precision of a newsman. To quote him, When it first turned that circle and came near the starting point, I was right in front of it. And I said then, and I believe still, it was one of the grandest sights, if not the grandest sight of my life. This experience made Amos Root a true believer, if not a prognosticator. He concluded his essay by saying, quote, These two brothers have probably not even a faint glimpse of what their discovery is going to bring to the children of men. 
Well, they must have had some idea. Feeling certain they had something with real applications for the military, they asked to set up a demonstration with anyone in the government who'd listen. It's bizarre to think about in light of the century of warplanes that followed, but at this point, the War Department had zero interest, basically shooing the brothers away like precocious children. But predictably, the two never slowed down their work. They kept on moving forward. The overtures to the U.S. military continued through 1905 and 1906. Finally, a breakthrough came when Wilbur met Frank Lamb, a lieutenant in the U.S. Army Aeronautical Division. Lamb was a big supporter of the Wright brothers' efforts to date and was able to arrange a presentation of their latest flyer to the U.S. Board of Ordnance and Fortification. The board was impressed and commissioned a new flyer, but it had to meet a specific series of guidelines. Military specifications included the requirement that the craft be light enough to be transported on a normal military wagon, that it carry a passenger in flight as well as the pilot, and that it fly for at least an hour. The guys never flinched. If that's what they needed to do, they would. And they'd do it with the same deep concern for exactness that had guided them to this point. It took some time, but by 1908, they created a machine that represented two huge new milestones. The operator was able to sit up in the craft rather than lie down, and he was able to carry two people instead of just himself. They were ready to demonstrate. The only problem now was that there seemed to be a growing interest in the wonders of the Wright machines overseas as well, namely in France, a country that made a point to say they would be the first to achieve true flight. This wasn't just an invite, it was a challenge. Now that they had interest in America and in France, the Wrights decided to divide and conquer. Orville would stay in America, giving successful demonstrations for the U.S. military reps in Fort Myer, while Wilbur showed their pride and joy off to the French. So they shipped a plane to France, where it stayed locked up in customs for months while Wilbur sought out the perfect place for his exhibition. Finally, Wilbur chose Le Mans, an already established racetrack about 100 miles south of Paris. He set up a shack where he stayed, alone with the airplane they'd kept in customs, and he worked to retool the plane, which, to his deep frustration, was now in shambles. No one knows if it was just careless custom agents who broke many of the plane's ribs while stashing the plane, or if it was malicious vandals sent to divert the Wright's fair claims. What was also unknown was how long it would take Wilbur to make the repairs necessary for a proper demo. It at least took long enough that the French press began mocking both Wright brothers, calling them le bluffeur. Many in Europe were intrigued by the Wright's claims, but few fully believed anything would come of them. An editorial in the Paris Herald chided their long delays, saying, quote, The Wrights have flown or they have not flown. They possess a machine or they do not possess one. They are, in fact, either flyers or liars. It is difficult to fly. It is easy to say, we have flown. Wilbur lived day and night in that shack, trying to complete the final adjustments. If these guys knew anything, it was how to keep their heads down over the work till it was done. And finally, it was done. The plane was taken to Le Mans, the agreed-upon location for the big show-and-tell. Hundreds had gathered to witness the flight, many of them assuming, some hoping, that Wilbur would fail. But then the tower was erected, the rails were laid down, the pulleys were attached and taut. And when that weight came down and the plane was pulled and launched up and above the ground, soaring high and moving at an impressive 35 miles per hour, he was an instant sensation. 
Wilbur did three laps of the racetrack, about 30 feet up, and with each pass, the throngs gathered in the grandstands cheered. Setting the plane down and emerging down onto the ground, Wilbur was met with a cheer no small town boy would ever expect to hear come his way. Francois Perret, the aeronautical editor of the French magazine Lato, wrote on the day, I saw the man who is said to be so unemotional turn pale. He had long suffered in silence. He was conscious that the world no longer doubted his achievements. Soon, Orville joined Wilbur overseas, and the two began a long rock and roll tour of their flyer. England, Italy, France. In September of 1909, Orville gave demonstrations to the officials of the German government, giving rides to passengers, instructing army officers, and eventually carrying the crown prince. There's an ominous quality to the image of Orville flying his plane before Kaiser Wilhelm, who must have been wondering how he could use this machine in warfare. World War I began only five years later, and the use of planes was the crucial factor that escalated the level of mass destruction in all wars from then on. Also in 1909, the Hudson Fulton Celebration opened in New York City. This festival commemorated the initial exploration of New York by Henry Hudson in 1609, and the commercial use of a paddle steamer by Robert Fulton in the 19th century. The Wrights couldn't let such a golden opportunity pass and arranged for a demonstration of their flying machine in New York City. Wilbur flew one of the Wright planes up and down the Hudson River and around the Statue of Liberty on September 29, 1909, and then for extended circles around Manhattan for just over 21 miles. It was the biggest audience for any of their demonstrations yet, with more than a million New Yorkers getting their first sight of an airplane in flight. The next few years were mostly about these sorts of demonstrations, but also about the growing influence of military interest on the continuation of design developments. After the Wright Company established in 1909 and worked with the government to continue perfecting the design, the brothers opened a factory in Dayton in 1910 that turned out two airplanes a month. Also in 1910, schools were established for training new pilots. They were called the Wright Company School of Aviation, and they were in Dayton, Long Island, and during the winter in Montgomery, Alabama. The one great tragedy of the Wright brothers was the overwhelming fatigue both experienced handling the many lawsuits that rose out of patent arguments. The few years after their great demonstrations in America and Europe were bogged down with handling the ins and outs of their very successful company, but also wielding lawyers against claims of infringement. For the brothers, their legal battles were never about money. Their government contract made the Wright family among the wealthiest in Dayton, and by the time of Orville's death, long after Wilbur's, he was worth over a million dollars. That's over 24 million in modern dollars. But for Orville and Wilbur, it was all about reputation. Who actually invented motorized flight? They knew the hours, the years they spent perfecting their original inspiration and spent every day defending it in one way or another. Wilbur said, quote, When we think what we might have accomplished if we had been able to devote this time to experiments, we feel very sad. But it is always easier to deal with things than with men, and no one can direct his life entirely as he would choose. A poignant choice of words. No one would have chosen for Wilbur, only 45 years old in the year 1912, to contract a fatal case of typhoid fever. So overworked and exhausted, especially being the one to handle business overseas, he must have become susceptible to the disease. 
On Memorial Day, May 30, 1912, Wilbur died at the family home in Dayton. Orville continued to pursue the perfection and advancement of airplane design for a time. Over the next several official designs, he created a triangular float attachment for planes flying over water. He also dropped the design from two propellers to one, built an enclosed fuselage, and increased horsepower and speed. But eventually, Orville felt the need to power down, and he sold their company in 1915 to pursue a quieter life. He donated their 1903 Kitty Hawk Flyer to the Smithsonian, and in 1944, he made his final flight in a Lockheed Constellation from Riverside, Ohio to Washington, D.C. In a famous quip, he said the wingspan of the Constellation airplane was longer than his first flight. Orville died of natural causes on January 30, 1948. He was 76. From modest beginnings, the Wright brothers' passion carried them a long way from home. But like their own invention, gliding into a smooth mid-air turnabout, they both ended up back at home, dying in Dayton, right where they started. As they wrote, quote, We had taken up aeronautics merely as a sport. We reluctantly entered upon the scientific side of it, but we soon found the work so fascinating that we were drawn into it deeper and deeper. There's a kind of Midwestern humility to that understatement. In light of the major contributions they made to the world, that simple characterization almost seems an affront to their incredible intelligence. Wilbur said once, there's two ways to train a wild horse. You can sit on the fence and take exceptional detailed notes on the horse's behavior and then go write an essay on it, or you can get on that horse and ride it. The Wright brothers rode it. And once they did, these two determined tinkerers, who died where they were born, never aspiring to greatness, were unable to avoid universal fame. Remember the moment when their great invention flew over the Hudson River in 1909? Now flash forward a handful of decades to the first moon landing, where Neil Armstrong carried with him a swatch of muslin from the wing of the Wright's 1903 flyer. There's a straight line from Fulton's 17th century paddle steamer to the Wright's airplane to NASA's space age lunar module. But more so, there's a deep connection between Orville and Wilbur Wright and all those who would risk their lives for the progress of humanity. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe to Historical Figures on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network or through our website, Parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Robert Hornack and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.